This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Glad to be back with you this morning. Coming up this hour, we add a little spice to your life. We'll tell you about a couple of spots around town to get super hot chilies for the latest in our Lost and Found series. But first, the governor of Texas continues to send buses of asylum seekers to Chicago. So far, a dozen buses have arrived here. The latest bus came on Friday, bringing 48 more people. Now, more than 650 additional people are here in Chicago. After a long journey to an unknown place, what do asylum seekers need? And how are local volunteers stepping up to help? Well, on the line is Joannis Favi, director of the Chicago Immigrant Transit Assistance Program with the Interfaith Community for Detained Immigrants. Hi, Joannis. Hi. Also with us in studio is Laura Mendoza, organizer with the Resurrection Project. Hey, Laura, welcome. Hello. So you went to meet one of the buses on Friday. What was that like? What was the mood? Um, I mean, I've been there since the start, since it started about 19 days ago. Um, And so the mood is is very much the same. Um, People are tired. Um, People have been on those buses for 24 hours. Um, you know, they've been on a three-month journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're just relieved to to see a welcoming face, um, to know that they're going to have somewhere to sleep, um, that they're going to have food, and that they're going to be able to to take a warm shower. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they're, they're relieved that there is, like, this effort from the city and from the state and from the non-for-profits to receive them um, and to help them um, as they navigate this, this new stage uh, in their lives. You know, one of the things we've been hearing over and over throughout this process is... Uh, City leaders don't know when these buses are coming. How is it that you're finding out when these migrant buses are going to arrive? Yeah, I mean, through a lot of networks. um, And we're also working with the city. um, And a lot of it is we have volunteers who just will wait at Union Station. I think we've waited for like two, three hours sometimes. And so you're just standing outside. Um, Boy. Yeah, which is doable right now. Um, and we are definitely thinking about like when winter comes, you know, that gets What's even that more be difficult. Like? Yeah. Uh, Joannis, people have been in uh, dangerous, physically grueling situations, sometimes for months at a time. Many enter immigration detention, they're released, uh, and then they're put on this bus to a city that they've presumably never even been to before. Many are arriving when it's dark. This is all objectively, to me, terrifying and anxiety-inducing, just to say the least. So what are you hearing, Joannis, from, from people? You know, once they do get here, what are they saying? Well, uh, when my volunteer great people at the Greyhound Station, they immediately uh, assess the need, ask them uh, what do they need. The first thing we notice, sometimes people don't know how to read and they, they can miss the bus and then they can be stranded and then they're exhausted, they're hungry and, and desperate. They're lost. They need help. Mm. So we, we buy them food, hot meal, coffee, and, uh, and get them on the other side of the Crayon station and give them uh, a set of clothes, uh, wipes, because uh, we don't have a place for them uh, to get a warm shower like or I say earlier, but we we uh, uphold the dignity by giving them uh, new clothes and uh, food and mm-hmm. help them get a new ticket so they can continue the journey. Now, for the for the one that choose to stay here uh, in Chicago, we have a housing program, and then we uh, refer them to our housing program. But at the yeah. moment, we have capacity because of the crisis happening. Yeah, and we'll talk more about that housing. Uh program, Joannis. Do some of them have friends and family here? 
Well, uh, the way it works is uh, when people were working together uh, for the past two months, let's say from Colombia to arrive to the United States, it take them about two months. And then uh, they make friends on the road that uh, often have family or friends in the U.S. and uh, they pass uh, contact to one another. And when they arrive, they, they uh, try to, to, to get together with their friends in see. Chicago. So, yes, some people have friends or family here. Even still, it sounds like new family or new friends, right? Newfound friends that will eventually become, you know, the family you choose, right? Um do people, Laura, have physical injuries that need to be dealt with when they get here? And, and I wonder how you and volunteers help meet those needs. Yeah, so well, we, we are working with, with the city of Chicago in collaboration with the city of Chicago, the Office of Emergency Management. And so there, there are paramedics on site when the buses do arrive. Um, so we do ask, first thing we ask is if anybody has any emergency, any medical need that needs to be um, addressed immediately. Mm-hmm. What we are seeing is definitely a lot of dehydration, um, swollen legs, like extremely swollen legs. Um, you know, sometimes uh, just like scratches from like all of the the journey that they've had or like injuries on, especially on their legs um, is, is what we've been Swollen seeing. legs probably from sitting for so long, right? Having your legs right. just... Correct. Yeah. Hang. From all the city, from all the sitting and not having enough water either on yeah. those buses. Uh, join us. Back to you. You're leading the interfaith community for detained immigrants. And for years, you have been coordinating volunteers to meet immigrants at the Greyhound station and the, and the union stations when they get here. Uh, you're now sending these experienced volunteers to do the same thing for these buses that are arriving here from Texas. Anything that you're seeing different now with these buses that are arriving? Um, the, the only difference is that they have media attention. We've been uh, dealing with this issue for many years. And uh, in the month of July, we serve about 75 people. In the month of August, we serve about 62 people. And this, the need are the same housing. And uh, for the one that will remain in Chicago, employment authorization document. Mm. So they can sustain themselves. Talk more about that housing program you mentioned earlier. What goes into finding them places to stay? I, it it takes... Uh, a lot of liabilities uh, to 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 house someone. You have to care for them just like you care for your children. So you have to think about healthcare. You have to think about school for the kids. You have to think about uh, uh, mental health uh, because most of these people are traumatized. They've been through uh, horrific situation, uh, rape, uh, 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 gang violence, just name it. And uh, we we pay for those needs. We, we get them to see uh, medical specialists to help them. And then uh, we help the kid go to school. And then you have to provide food, you know, yeah. on a daily basis. And it takes up to a year for someone to receive their employment authorization document and uh, uh, for us to get them through our housing program so they can be independent. But you said earlier you're at capacity now. Yes, we are capacity. We we are taking care of right now. Uh, uh, yeah, Laura, what local shelters are taking these asylum seekers? Um, so the city is working with uh, right now Salvation Army, um, mm-hmm. and they're also working on setting up alternative shelters. Um, I mean, we know the shelter system is also um, at capacity. They're not going to have enough beds, especially with the frequency that we're receiving buses and the amount of people that we're receiving. Um, so there is kind of an ongoing plan, um, you know, yeah. kind of building the, the plane while you're flying it as to, like, what are some other alternatives, other places? Where are local can- families an option? Can some stay with 
Um, that has, I mean, that has not really, it's not necessarily part of the city program, but I mean, it is, it's basically what Johannes mentioned, right? Like yeah. people are meeting people on the road and some of those uh, friends that are, are here in the city have opened their doors and are taking in people, but it's not necessarily like a very intentional part of it. It just yeah. happens kind of organically. What about churches? Church, some churches have taken also um, some some individuals. Um, again, it's just a matter of like the demand is mm-hmm. is very high, um, and there are certain things uh, logistically that can also make it difficult. Things like even you know sh- having showers at the churches, right, can be like a logistical issue as to why they can't really host uh-huh. um, a lot of people. Um, there's also the you know separating by gender. Um, men, women, quarters, um, that also makes it difficult. And then you do have families um, that are coming in as well. So all of those uh, play. Yeah, and those shelters you mentioned, like the Salvation Army, for instance, how long can they stay there? Um, that's a that's a really good question. I think we're we're not sure yet. Um, I think the hope is that they're they're able to to transition quickly. Um, but that's not really happening, right? Because there is the issue of like being able to work. Um, and if immigration's taking about a year um, or longer, you know, in some of these cases, that means people aren't going to have very steady work. Yeah. Um, and so that's it's it's something that, that we're still trying to figure out. Just a thought, yeah. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, our guests are Joannis Favi with the Interfaith Community for Detained Immigrants and Laura Mendoza with the Resurre- Resurrection Project. They've been meeting new arriving uh, asylum seekers as they get here in Chicago from Texas. You mentioned this earlier. The, the seasons are changing. Winter, Laura, is around the corner Will there be capacity to house not just these incoming asylum seekers, but the city's homeless population? Yeah, I mean, that's a big worry. That's on everybody's mind. And I think um, the city's definitely working to try to figure out uh, what could be a solution for that to like make sure that there are enough shelters for um, the current population in Chicago and then the incoming um, immigrants are yeah. And, and Joanna, you know, from what we know, it's likely that Governor Abbott in Texas is going to send more asylum seekers here to Chicago, which means uh, continued community support. That's going to be very critical. So what do you want to see from volunteers moving forward? From from volunteers, um, I, I would like to uh, ask people not only to volunteer help, but also donate to help these families. Uh, and uh, the need just uh, will keep increasing. And uh, we, we definitely have to think about an exit plan. Housing them in shelter is just a bandit. Giving them food is just a bandit. We, we definitely need to advocate and make sure that they, they receive work permit so they can sustain themselves. That's the end goal. Mm. What kinds of conversations are you having with some of the other community organizers about just keeping this up, maintaining uh, meeting with our representative and uh, asking them to uh, push forward uh, and and uh, to to the capital and hopefully let's say the federal government will um, allow them to work. Yeah, you immigrated to the U.S. yourself, Joannis. You've been through this system. Uh, you experienced firsthand what it was like to be detained. What is it like now for you to have volunteers? Um, or, or what was it like then, I should ask, for you back then, having volunteers reach out and help when you were detained? Well, I, I, will, I will just be uh, really honest with you. Unless you really go through this, you, you cannot care deeply for these people. The need 
are, are so many and uh, going through detention is horrific not having uh, the right to work and being permitted to live in the united states is horrific which the government should not let people in if they cannot give them an authorization to work that is keeping them in a prison and forcing them to commit crime to go back to the system is set up so we definitely need to yeah. advocate and and have the government allow people to work when they permit them to enter the United States. That's a huge factor here. Laura, anything to add? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it, it's something that, that needs to happen in order for us to be able, because like Johanna said, it is a Band-Aid. If you um, can't work, what can you do? Exactly. How can you provide for your family? Exactly. And it also, I mean, it, it opens up um, people to a vulnerable position, right? Because just because you don't have that permit doesn't mean people aren't going to you know, try to figure out how to work, um, which makes them a lot more vulnerable. And people do take advantage of those situations. And that's something that's definitely on our mind. Like, how do we prevent that from happening? And we can't. We can only let them know um, their rights in the U.S. and what should be um, the amount that they should be paid, the hours that they should be working. Yeah. Um, to and, and these work permits, is it our city or state that can help with this? That's all through the federal government. Yeah. So that's all the federal government that they would have to figure out how to do this. Yeah. Uh, last word to you here, Joannis, before we take a break. What's needed right now? How can people listening help out? You mentioned earlier volunteering and donations, right? Yes, we, we have a link on our website, icdichicago.org, uh, for for donation uh, through our Amazon wish list. And people can support us, uh, help replenish our storage unit. We've been uh, forwarding out the donation to the state and uh, to the to, to help directly the people that are coming uh, from the Texas Spurs. So all information are on our website. That was Joanna Favi, Director of the Chicago Immigrant Transit Assistance Program. Thank you so much, Joanna. Back now with more Reset. I'm your host, Sasha Ann Simons. We're continuing our conversation about the more than 650 asylum seekers who've been bused to Chicago over the past two weeks. Now, the asylum application process is long and complicated, and folks have to wait six months after they apply to get work authorization. So what could make this process faster and less agonizing? Advocates say the federal asylum process and immigration policy as a whole, that needs to shift. Laura Mendoza, immigrant organizer with the Resurrection Project, is still with us. And joining us now is Ed Pratt, director of the Interfaith Community for Detained Immigrants. Welcome back to Reset, Ed. Thank you. Good morning. And to give us legal context is Nicole Hallett, director of the Immigrant Rights Clinic at the University of Chicago's Law School. Glad you could join us, Nicole. Thank you for having me. I'll start with you. What do we mean when we say asylum seeker? And how is this different from the other forms of immigration? Well, most of the people who are uh, being bused to Chicago arrived in the United States at the at the southern border. And when you when you arrive uh, in the United States and you do not have a visa uh, and you're not a citizen, uh, most of those people are sort of turned back immediately or deported immediately. There is an exception in the law for, for individuals who uh, claim that they are afraid of returning to their home country. They get put into a separate process. And um, if they pass through that initial process, 
then many of them are released into the United States and given the opportunity to apply for asylum. That process sometimes takes years, but when we say asylum seeker, what we mean is that these are individuals that have expressed to the U.S. government that they intend to apply for asylum and will be given an opportunity to do so. You know, we now have over 650 people here in Chicago who presumably are going to start this process that you've just outlined for us. Is there enough capacity to help everyone with the process? Nicole? Yes. Hi. Sorry, you you, uh, cut out for just a moment, but I think I heard your question. So, you know, in terms of capacity, these these people will be going through immigration court hearings um, and there isn't enough capacity. The immigration court system right now has, uh, I think, more than a million cases that are pending. It often takes many years for people's cases to be heard. Uh, but th- but this isn't a problem that just applies to these 650 people. This applies to anybody who's in the immigration system in the United States. And these individuals will simply, you know, get in line with with everybody else um, that that has these hearings. Um, and like I said, it could take years yeah. for them to get an answer on their application. People um, seeking asylum, they've got to wait uh, six months before they can get work authorization. Why is that? Usually. Well, I mean, that's just the way that the law has been written. Um, You know, it's sort of assumed, I think it was assumed initially that most people's applications would be uh, resolved within six months. And so, you know, with such a short period of time, the thought was, I think, that they didn't need to work. That's obviously not the way it works now. It takes many years. But that six month uh, requirement is still in the law. Yeah. Uh, and, and I guess I should say it's not six months from when they enter the United States. It's six months from when they actually file their asylum application, which they're required to do within the first year after they enter the United States. Oh, I see. So conceivably, it could be, you know, up to a year and a half, uh, depending on when they file their asylum application before they can even file an application for work authorization, and then it sometimes takes months for that application mm. to be adjudicated. If if they're found to be working under the table in that time, how does this harm their asylum process? Well, I should I should just say um, that, of course, if you don't have work authorization in the United States, you cannot um, you cannot legally work. However, many asylum seekers do work under the table. And um, and that won't affect whether they can get asylum at the end of the day. It's not it's it wouldn't bar them from getting asylum. But um, it's it's very common for people to work under the table simply because, as you can imagine, it's very hard to live in the United States sometimes for over a year without access to employment. Yeah. Laura, I want you to weigh in here. You've been nodding your head throughout this entire portion of the conversation. How are people supposed to feed themselves? waiting six months to a year and a half even um, to be able to legally work. Right. I mean, the only way to do it is through networks, right, through um, having uh, jobs that pay cash or um, doing things like construction, right, that usually there is that ability to go in and do that work. Um, So, you know, people have to essentially just like ask around, right, and see where, um, you know, they'll be able to, to find employment. And I think the other thing I wanted to kind of mention in terms of like your question of like, do we have the bandwidth? Yeah. Um, 
I think that there is there's the immigration piece that yes, the federal government definitely needs to just get more workers, get a better process. And there's also the legal part of it. Um, if you're not working, you're not going to have money to pay a private attorney because that's going to cost you a lot of money. Um, so a lot of these families are going to rely on non-for-profits um, that have legal immigration legal clinics to be able to do this work. And we are definitely, like, a lot of those organizations are at capacity, don't have the funding to be able to take on more cases, and especially cases that could take up to a year and a half. Yeah. Ed, I, I want to bring you into the conversation and, and ask you to just piggyback off of what Laura just mentioned. Are people having to rely on the goodwill of individuals and organizations Absolutely. and churches? Yes, and uh, I can just say that it's going to be going to require, and it currently is, a collaborative response by the community. No one organization can, you know, take care of these families and all of their needs. So we collaborate with others uh, for legal assistance, for example, or on for food. So um, we we also have many medical doctors and dentists who will take a certain number of people uh, in our care. So it's uh, we re- really rely on the kindness of strangers, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. The people that ICDI serves are uh, generally people without family or friends in the country, except as Johanna said, sometimes they make a friend walking through the jungle on their way up here. But um, many have just heard, if you get here, you'll be safe and they'll take care of you. And so they head to the border. Mm -hmm. Nicole, can they apply for government assistance? As asylum seekers, they cannot for the most part. Now, there are some state programs and some local programs that they might be able to, to access. But in terms of the federal government, they're not entitled to benefits until their asylum application has been granted. Um, at that point, they, they can access um, you know, Medicare and other federal programs, but not until that point. Yeah. This is getting a lot of attention, Laura, as we, we mentioned earlier in the program, because in many ways it's a political stunt. Uh, people seeking asylum, though, they've been coming here before Governor Abbott started putting them on buses and shipping them here to, to the Chicago area. How do you think the larger, the general public should be understanding this moment, what's happening right now? I mean, it's it's something that, as you mentioned, has happened for years, um, has happened since the beginning of this nation, right? Um, So I think the the, the larger public should really look at what the federal government is doing and the fact that this isn't new. Um, Immigrants coming into this country is not new, right? What's new is how it's happening, the amount of people that are coming in, and the fact that there has been no changes in immigration law since mm-hmm. 1996. Right? It's actually getting harder for people to be able to adjust their status. So how do you feel seeing stunts like sending a busload of migrants to the vice president's house? Yeah, I mean, they're trying to make the point that immigrants right, are a burden on society. And what we know is that, yes, it's going to take an effort and we're going to have to like all band together and collaborate and help them, um, you know, like these first couple of years, first couple of months. But what we do know is that immigrants are an asset to our state, to our city, that they are going to be contributing members of society, right? Um, so it's all optics because at the end of the day, if you look at the numbers, if you look at the contribution that immigrants make in this country, that's actually what we should be focusing on. Absolutely. Uh, Ed, you have worked with people who have waited years for their applications to go through. Can you talk more about the toll that this takes on their lives? 
the process? Well, there's uncert- yeah, there's uncertainty in the family. Will we be able to, you know, when will we be able to secure work? When can we, and you want to you put your children in school, you don't want daddy to be sent away. A lot of times if one, if it's uh, one partner is uh, a newcomer to the country and they marry an American citizen, they can still be sent back to their country if they haven't gone through the proper steps for sponsorship, which also costs money and costs attorney's fees. So um, sometimes we have one family, uh, daddy had four children with uh, a citizen of the United States, and they sent him away. And she's home with four young children and unable to work because she's got the four kids. So it's very disruptive wow. to a family. Yeah. yeah. Nicole, uh, temporary protected status for Venezuelans, that's been extended. Uh, is this a viable option? Is well, it faster? It, it it could be faster for some people. I will say that the way that uh, temporary protective status works is that you have to be present in the United States when they announce the country is being added to the TPS list. And so it has been extended, but, but, but that doesn't mean that anybody who's coming to the border today from Venezuela is going to be able to apply unless they update that date by which someone has to be in the United States. So for many of the people who are coming right now, TPS is not going to be an option. And um, unless something changes, asylum will be the only way that they can stay. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about what could ease the asylum process for the newly arriving immigrants that have been bused here from Texas. Our guests are Ed Pratt, who's director of the Interfaith Community for Detained Immigrants, Nicole Hallett, who's director of the Immigrant Rights Clinic, and Laura Mendoza, immigrant organizer with the Resurrection Project. Ed, you've been asking lawmakers to introduce a law that would allow asylum seekers to be able to apply for work as soon as they submit that application. Can you talk more about that? Yes. If if they didn't have to wait six months after that application and is submitted. So what we've asked them to do is write the law that when you apply for asylum, you are then qualified to work. That would help a great deal. But as was mentioned, you know, you can be here a year before requesting asylum. And so if they if people don't know these laws, it's very, very confusing. And so they really need legal representation earlier, uh, as early as they can get it. So when people are now getting off the buses at our hotel, we had an attorney come and share with them the different legal uh the statuses that they they might have in different avenues depending on how they came in. So, uh, but most people just don't know that there are these laws, yeah. and uh, they, they don't even know there's different ways to be an immigrant here. <laughs> I can so. definitely see that being the case for sure. It's a lot I, of information. I, <laughs> I mean, yeah. just one scan of the USCIS website, right? The uh, oh. U.S. Immigration website. Yes. It is the most complicated website I've ever seen, and I'm. I'm speaking as an immigrant because I do have to visit that website and check out processing times for different forms and all kinds of things. It's it's a lot. So imagine this not being my native tongue. I don't speak English. This is not uh, this is not a familiar surrounding. There's no way I could navigate that. Right. Also imagine, you know, coming off from like a really long journey and you're worried about how your basic needs are going to be met. Right. Where am Um, I sleeping tonight? Right. So all of those things are in your head and now you have to process and intake all of this information about 
immigration and your status. What do you, Laura, want to see change with the asylum process personally? I mean, I think there there needs to be a lot of change. Um, you know, when people are coming in at the border, they're getting wrong dates, um, you know, to present to immigration. Um, they're being sent to different offices because they don't have a, necessarily a place. They don't know where they're going to land. Um, and all of that, it's, it's all paperwork. Um, it's all manual. Um, I think, you know, why are we still using paper forms? Um, and, and part of the reason is because there's no money being invested, right, into, into making these processes better and faster um, so that people are able to go in, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they need to hire more people to be able to actually take on the amount of, uh, of work that is coming in, the amount of applications. People shouldn't have to wait a year and a half um, before they're able to, to kind of like start their lives. Yeah, when, and when we talk about housing people who are arriving by bus, we got to remember that this is happening against a backdrop of lack of affordable housing in this city in the first place. So to me, this this is really heightening existing inequalities, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it is a problem. It's a, it's a huge issue that we have. And yes, we're adding more people to it. But I think, you know, immigrants will continue to to kind of do what immigrants do, which is like figure out solutions for it. And, you know, that can mean sharing houses. I actually remember when we first um, came to the U.S. from Mexico, um, it was it was uh, my uncle, my aunt, their family, and then my family mm -hmm. sharing like a two bedroom apartment, and that's how we were able to make it. We right? did the same in in Toronto. We shared with my aunt and my cousin. Yeah, so that's that's what you know. A lot of of uh, people coming in are gonna have to start doing is who can I room with? Who can I share this expense with in order to make it affordable? Yeah, Ed, what does a partnership? In your view, what does a partnership with the city look like to, to meet the long-term needs of these migrants? Well, we're working, uh, ICDI is working with the city and the state for to do that. Um, we are trying to develop affordable housing, and that's taking a lot of not-for-profits uh, collaborating in the city. Uh, Resurrection Project um, has been doing that for decades, and we need to continue to step that up. Um, there's so many things we could do at the city level, but I think for us, many of the solutions are coming in from the state. They have more funds and they have, they have emergency funds that they can apply to this. So that's helpful. Yeah. Um, I think the ultimate solutions are going to have to be federal. Um, for example, the people coming in now are primarily Venezuelans and Nicaraguans. That's because Title 42 does not apply to them. Uh, Title 42 is where you couldn't come into the country because of COVID. And so they've been turning back. People lovingly call it the remain in Mexico policy. But we don't have formal um, diplomatic relations with Nicaragua and Venezuela, mm -hmm. the, the actual government of Venezuela. So those people are able to, to come in and stay. But we need to remember how many tens of thousands of people have been pushed back into into Mexico. So that's a federal solution. I mean, yeah, it's ultimately, yeah. It's ultimately going to take the federal government uh, changing some of these some of these laws. But for the city, affordable housing and uh, the mayor's office and the Department of uh, Human Services, we're all working together as not-for-profits with those organizations. Good. Nicole, what would you say to, to people who say that the way to fix this problem is just to 
dissuade immigrants from crossing the border? Well, what I what I would say to that is that that's been tried for for decades and it hasn't worked. So it's it's not like the the United States has had their arms open uh, this entire time and only now is it is it a problem? I mean, there have been people coming for um, for forever, basically since the the country was founded, and they will continue to come. And that's particularly the case when you have places that are unsafe and violent. And people are willing to do almost anything to protect their children, which I think we can all understand. So the solution is not going to be deterrence. It's a failed solution. It's been tried. It's been tried in many, many different ways. And what happens is that the system just gets more cruel. Um, More people die. More people are detained. And yet people still come. So we need to come up with another solution that doesn't rely on convincing people that are afraid for their lives that they shouldn't try to make the journey. Last word to you, Laura. What are you keeping your eye on moving forward? Um, just making sure that these uh, these migrants that are coming in feel welcome, that we continue to collaborate with as many people as possible. So it, it's, that is really the main focus, is making sure that they are welcomed into our city. Into our city. That was Laura Mendoza, immigrant organizer with the Resurrection Project, Ed Pratt, director of the Interfaith Community for Detained Immigrants, and Nicole Hallett, director of the Immigrant Rights Clinic at the University of Chicago's Law School. Thank you all.